Welcome to the Enable Me podcast series, where we bring together stroke survivors, health professionals and researchers providing you with practical advice. To enable you on your journey to reclaim your life after stroke. You can join the conversation at enableme.org.au. This series is presented by Australia's National Stroke Foundation. Memory forms a big part of our understanding of our experiences and ourselves. It's also essential on the smaller scale for simply getting through everyday life. And when you've had a stroke, it helps you with your ongoing recovery. But memory is also commonly affected by stroke, and for many people, this has a big impact. In this podcast, we will talk about what you can do if you're facing memory problems after stroke. Now, we've got a bit of a full house today. In the studio, we have psychology doctoral students Tony Withiel and David Lawson. Um, both also stroke survivors themselves, as well as one of their supervisors, clinical neuropsychologist Renee Stolwick. And as well as sharing their knowledge and experience, they'll all be telling us about their memory skills and rehabilitation programs that they run out of Monash University. On the phone, we also have stroke survivor Jan Corcoran, who's taken part in the memory program remotely from North Queensland, and she'll tell us what it was like and how it helped. And later on from Stroke Line, we have Elena Stewart to give her perspective as a speech pathologist and the advice that she gives when you call the Stroke Line service. Uh, Thank you to everyone for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yes. Now, we'll start with you, Jan, um, which is the way we normally start these podcasts. Could you just tell us briefly your stroke story? Well, my stroke um, happened about six weeks after I had a home invasion. And on, I was at work in the cancer pathology laboratory, my ear popped, and down I went. And that was sort of the base, basis of it. I, the staff put me into their room, where they take blood, etc. But anyway, they got me in the car and took me to a local doctor who never knew me anyway. And he looked after me and I could not keep my eyes open so he decided he'd better put me in hospital. So I had five weeks and another stroke four days after I went to hospital. Five weeks in there and I did not have a neuro- neurologist. I had a gastroenterologist looked after me and it took five weeks and I still had, did not make their mind up that, that, had, that I had had two strokes. It was confirmed later when I went down to Townsville and saw someone else down there. So that's briefly the stroke yeah, what sort of impacts did you have from the strike? Um, well, both sides were the both of the strokes were either side of my cerebellum. Um, balance, speech was the main one. Forgetfulness, words, you name it. I couldn't walk and I couldn't talk properly. It was everything combined. Okay, so you did have. Uh, you said you had some forgetfulness and some problems with the words. How did the um, how did the memory issues affect your life then? I think I just, I don't really remember. I just lived day by day and I thought I was fine. But obviously I wasn't. Yep. And um, I could not even say a sentence for about three years. Um, memory, I was probably so forgetful. I couldn't even work out how to get a, say, a glass out of the cupboard if I wanted a certain glass. And I thought, four eyes back, that was the glass I wanted. And forget about anything in front of it. It was just smashed. My memory was tight because I had to basically start, like I suppose, babies and start to learn how to do things all over again. 
Well, now to understand, I guess, what's really going on there, um, Tony, I'm going to ask you to explain a bit of the science of memory for us. But as I mentioned in the introduction, you are a stroke survivor yourself. Could you tell us a bit of your own story? Sure. So I had my stroke when I was 20 years old. It was a month before my 21st birthday. It was after I went to gym. I started feeling a bit weak and then I sort of fell on the floor, not realizing what had happened. I was quite stubborn at the time. So when my parents came home, I was refusing to go to hospital, <laughs> saying that I was fine and everything would be okay. Um, but I was taken to Box Hill Hospital, thankfully, um, and I was given quite acute treatment there. So I was lucky in that it was caught within the first three-hour window. Um, and from that, you've obviously gone through quite a bit of recovery since then. Uh, how has that affected your own research interests? I was always interested in neurological conditions, including stroke, but I guess it's really reinforced my passion to help, particularly in young stroke survivors to be able to provide better care and treatment for young people who suffer a stroke. And I think coming from my experience, being on the other end where I'm, I wasn't old, I didn't fit any of the characteristic stereotypes of a stroke and seeing how that affected people around me and myself and wanting to sort of change that perception. So we're talking about memory today. Uh, now, it is a very complex subject. Is it possible to give a, a brief overview for everyone to have a basic understanding of how it works? Yes, absolutely. So, as you say, memory is an extremely complex part of the brain and the part of our functioning. And memory is actually not one thing. When we talk about memory, we talk about a number of different systems that all work together. So, for example, remembering how to ride a bike and play an instrument is very different to remembering to take medication or attend a doctor's appointment. So, certain systems are more vulnerable to the impacts of a stroke. Many listeners may still be able to remember how to ride a bike, but may have more difficulty remembering people's names. And when we think about how memories are formed in the brain, we often like to refer to an analogy of a filing cabinet, where our brain is a filing cabinet. And in that filing cabinet, there are a number of different files, which represent different memories that we hold. When we form a new memory or how memory works, the first step is getting the file into memory. So actually physically storing that or getting that memory ready for storage through a process that we call encoding. Once that memory is in our filing cabinet, it's then stored for a period of time until we need it again. And that's just simply a process of storage. And when we're ready to recall it or we want it back in our, our conscious awareness, we need to then find that file from our filing cabinet, get it out and bring it back to that awareness through a process called retrieval. So after stroke, any one of these processes can be impacted, can be one or it can be a combination of them that ultimately lead to what people experience on an everyday basis. We also see a distinction between the side of the brain where the stroke occurred and what types of memories we're forgetting. So for people who have a stroke on the left side of the brain, often our memory loss can be more around language and conversations. While people who have a stroke on the right side of the brain, it can be more spatial things, for example, directions to play and things like that. It's okay. a very brief overview. <laughs> that is, that is uh, yeah, that's a good starting point. I'm sure we'll have a few more questions to clarify on that. Well, I might go to you now, David. Now, you're also a stroke survivor, but you've had a longer journey to get to where you are at the moment with your current studies. Um, when did you have your stroke? Uh, my stroke was more than 20 years ago now. Um, I was 19 at the time. Yeah, I was, I was living out of home and, you know, I, I felt kind of well. I, I knew I had a, a problem with high blood pressure, but I don't think, uh, thinking back now, that I really appreciated uh, the the importance of compliance with medication. I felt pretty well. I felt pretty invincible. Yeah, so I, I there was a night that I was just one, watching Wimbledon uh, and eating pizza with a mate, 
and I got uh, uh, pins and needles down one side. I had no idea what was going on, and I realised now that I was having a parietal hemorrhage, and that put me in a, an induced coma for 12 or 13 days, and I woke up with a, a fairly dense hemiplegia, so sort of paralysis down my, my right side, um, and I was unable to speak. I was in inpatient rehab after that for about three and a half, four months. David, when people talk about memory problems after a stroke, uh, it often seems to be the short-term memory that is that has the biggest impact. And why is that in particular? Well, really, if you kind of consider what Tony was saying about um, uh, all the different kind of functions uh, that are involved and implicated in, in the function of memory... Um, we know that every stroke is different. Um, it can occur in lots of different areas of the brain uh, in different ways to different uh, severities. Um, so in that respect, it's kind of like a, 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 fing a fingerprint. Every stroke can be unique. Um, and if you think of all the different kinds of strokes that you can, can uh, have, uh, and all the different parts of the brain that uh, can be uh, involved in that stroke, um, all the different... Uh, thinking skills uh, that can be damaged. Yeah, it, it involves, you know, you end up with a, a, a huge amount of uh, combinations. If you take Tony's filing cabinet idea, yeah, the brain structures uh, involved in thinking skills like attention uh, and processing speed. If, if there's damage to those systems, that, that can make it very difficult for information to be taken in or, you know, to organize the information quickly or efficiently enough. And a different kind of stroke could damage, you know, hippo hippocampal regions. So the, uh, the hippocampus is really important for uh, the transference of short-term short to long-term memory or uh, the, the storage of memory. In terms of the filing cabinet, that's just kind of uh, filing, you know, the, those files not being stored in, uh, in that filing cabinet. So while the root of the problem could be one of or several of uh, a huge range of different fundamental uh, ways that stroke can affect the brain, a lot of those can have this knock-on knock effect to memory. Um, and that's why people, that's people what, sorry, that's what people notice um, is that end result. So uh, if the, the root of the problem could be anything, but what people notice is that the end result, which is, you know, I've forgotten my uh, appointment or I've just, you know, I, I can't remember the name of that person that I met a few minutes ago. And as, you know, uh, neuropsychologists, I, I, I think it's really important that we get kind of a comprehensive assessment um, of memory and cognition. So you really understand the nature of uh, the memory deficit if, if there is a, a, a memory problem. So you know what you're working with, um, and in that way, rehab can be a little bit more targeted. I understand. Well, I mentioned that there's some other factors that you need to take into account then as well, such as um, fatigue is one that in particular would have a bit of an effect. Uh, Tony, I believe you had a bit of uh, fatigue after your stroke. So can you explain what fatigue has to do with um, memory issues? Sure. So fatigue is a very common issue people face after stroke, and it can be quite debilitating um, in my experience in particular it really limits what you can do on a daily basis and that effect is not only what you can do but also what you can take in and how you can remember things so when we're fatigued often we're feeling a little bit sluggish a little bit slow a bit like there's a cloud 
it hanging over our heads. When that happens, that really impacts what we can take in from in our environment. And that, speaking to David again, that impacts the process of getting that information into our memory store, so that process of encoding. If we're not able to attend to that information in the environment, it won't be there later when we have to remember it. So fatigue is a big barrier and a big has a big impact on our ability to remember things later on. In saying that, though, there are a number of important ways that we can manage our fatigue and that we can reduce its impacts on a daily basis. So if we think of energy as almost like a battery store, after a really good night rest, you probably have about 100% battery. And as the day goes on, your battery store will gradually get lower and lower. So the things that you can do to make sure that you're still operating at a range where you're able to take in and respond to things in the environment, they include things like taking rest breaks where you think are appropriate, so not pushing yourself to the point where there's no coming back from that level of, of work or that level of input. Also, things like spacing really complicated tasks. So if you have a task that's that's quite difficult or you have a lot of elements that are involved, really breaking that down and pacing yourself through that process. By doing that, you're you're reducing that cloud or the likelihood of that, that drowsy feeling, I guess, and you're more likely to improve your memory performance. And I'm sure everybody has noticed, irrelevant of whether they've had a stroke or not, that when you're tired, you're more likely to forget things on that day. And there's also um, some new novel exciting research that's looking at a way of managing fatigue through a behavioral therapy approach. So it's called cognitive behavioral therapy. And this approach provides a helpful behavioral strategies to help manage sleep patterns and activities to conserve that battery or to conserve your energy. For instance, by focusing on the pacing of tasks, like I said, as well as integrating breaks into activities and a few other um, strategies around maintaining good sleep habits. I suppose this does show how memory in is tied up to these other sort of issues of recovery, like with fatigue. Um, now, Renee, you have many years of history, I think, in stroke rehabilitation and neuropsychology in that part of that. Can you give us, tell us a bit about what people can expect during their recovery? Should they expect their memory to improve from its initial state or will it stay the same or potentially get worse? Yeah, well, I guess just what um, kind of what David was saying before in terms of um, types of memory problems after stroke, actually people are really individual in terms of their recovery patterns um, following stroke. Um, usually what we see is within the first kind of three to six months after stroke, you do see improvement. Um, and that really is in line with the, the neuronal recovery of the brain. There's a lot of recovery early on, particularly within those first few months. Um, historically, they didn't think there was much kind of neuronal recovery in the brain, but now we know that actually there's a lot more than we originally thought. What do you, what do you mean by that, neuronal recovery? So when, when you have a stroke, you have obviously an infarct in the brain, which is a, a, an area of, of, of cell death. But... Um, and when I'm talking about neuronal recovery, I'm talking about the in those first few weeks and months, um, there is actually some regeneration, particularly in terms of connections between brain cells and actually restoration of some of those functional networks within the brain. Uh, and some of those functional networks are involved with attention and, and memory. So we do see this neuronal recovery. Okay. And that's talking about within the first three to six months. Beyond that, though, people also experience quite significant recovery, um, maybe due less to actual kind of neuronal regeneration. Um, people learning to manage their memory problems in a lot more um, kind of efficient and adaptive ways. So learning to use a range of kind of um, rehabilitation strategies, which I think we'll, we might talk a little bit later. There's that kind of improvement long term as, as well. But as I said, it's very individual. Some people might experience um, maybe not so much in terms of improvement. Some people actually may experience some decline uh, and that's probably worth having a chat about um, because that's probably of some concern. 
um, it wouldn't really fit. So if someone does experience maybe a decline in their memory, um, that's a bit of a red flag that something is maybe going on. And there's a lot of factors that might cause that. Um, some of them might be kind of psychological. So that's a common one. If someone is experiencing a depressed mood or anxiety, we know that mood can really impact on cognitive function, particularly memory. So that's one reason why someone might experience a decline. Um, poor sleep. There's a whole range of, of psychological and, and lifestyle factors that, that can impact on memory. So that's something, if you are experiencing a decline in your memory after stroke, that's something that you probably want to check out um, with a GP or a psychologist or, or someone within your rehabilitation team. Is there any connection between stroke and dementia? Um, because it's of course the other big fear with um, with memory loss. Yeah, and I, I, I've come across a lot of patients that have seen me um, maybe a few weeks, a few months after their stroke saying, hey look, I've, I've got these memory problems, I'm, I'm really scared I've got dementia. I guess the important thing to realise is that those two things are very, very different. Um, so stroke is usually uh, a one-off kind of event where there's damage to the brain, whereas dementia is an umbrella term that refers to a, a kind of progressive degeneration of, of brain structure and brain function. Uh, and dementia is just is actually an umbrella term for a number of different kind of pathologies. So we've got Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, and these other types of dementias as well. I guess a really important message to get out there is that just because you've had a stroke doesn't mean you'll get dementia. Um, and if you have memory problems after stroke, that doesn't mean it's dementia as well. A lot of people have memory problems after stroke due to the stroke. It's not so much a, a dementia process. The question that I often get is, am I at a higher risk of getting dementia because I've had a stroke? Um, and unfortunately, yeah, the, the, the risk is a little bit higher. Uh, it is higher for people that have had a stroke. A major uh, factor behind that, I think, though, is is that the risk factors for both stroke and dementia, some of them are very common. So if you think about all those cardiovascular risk factors of hypertension, high cholesterol, um, they're similar risk factors. Um, there's one, the one type of dementia that people with stroke are particularly at risk at is, is what's called vascular dementia. Mm -hmm. And without getting into too much detail, that's often due to people having numerous kind of strokes, um, what's called multi-infarct dementia, which is people having a number of strokes over time, which is um, causing kind of progressive um, neuropathology over time. Um, how do you know what, what would make you kind of concerned that you do have um, kind of vascular dementia? It's again that noticing deterioration over time of your cognitive functions or maybe some behavioral changes. Again, everyone with stroke and even people with vascular dementia are very different. Depending on whether that, where that damage is in the brain, um, people will look very different. So again, if you're experiencing any decline in function after a stroke, it's something you do really want to get and, and seek help with. In terms of preventing, uh, even though your risk is high, it's important to think about how to prevent your, uh, or minimize your risk of, of getting dementia. And um, it's really in, about controlling those risk factors of, of, of the cardiovascular risk factors. Um, and in, pre in recent years also, we've realized the importance of keeping active, um, really the importance of, of a good diet, getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise, looking after yourself, social interaction, all those um, all those strategies are really helpful in terms of preventing uh, and, and lowering your risk of a future kind of dementia or cognitive decline. Great. That's um, a fairly positive outlook there, I think. Um, let's talk about some other things that can be can be done to help. Um, now, I imagine though with all the, the, the work that uh, people like yourselves are doing that it has changed a lot over the years. Uh, David, given that your stroke was over 20 years ago, um, what was cognitive rehab and that sort of rehabilitation like uh, when you had your stroke? Um, certainly, you know, when I was in, in rehab, uh, the focus was was understandably 
on uh, on movement and physical functions and learning how to walk again and you know the focus was was getting me talking again and and uh, teaching me how to make breakfast for myself uh, but yeah I think there has been a change I don't I don't remember anything um, around that time about the rehabilitation of, of cognitive functions or thinking skills I um, you know these are particularly things like memory are really important for quality of life uh, but I remember you know after uh, my period of kind of formal uh, rehabilitation uh, yeah there, there certainly wasn't anything for me to, to go on to um, uh, focus on those thinking skills and I, I think a lot of those uh, you know problems from thinking skills uh, don't really emerge to their full extent until someone goes home um, you know so while you're an inpatient uh, in, in a hospital you know things kind of happen for you a lot there's you know the meals appear and uh, nurses tell you when you've got an appointment or you know people come and see you or you know, you're kind of surrounded by schedules and spreadsheets and all of that's kind of managed by other people. And um, so to an extent, you know, a lot of your thinking skills are being outsourced kind of to other people. It's not until you, you kind of go home and you're having to rely on your own thinking skills again um, that, you know, or, you know, a lot of people go back to work if, you know, if the people who, who can. Um, that's when, uh, you know, changes in thinking skills really come to the fore and that you realize that there has actually been a change. Um, so while 20 years ago, there, I, I don't believe that there was, uh, you know, the recognition, the recognition that there is now uh, on uh, on cognitive rehabilitation. Uh, I think that you know we are we are moving in that direction. Um, uh, and things like memory, uh, those kind of you know, problems with those kind of skills can be a bit of a hidden disability. Uh, you know, it's very easy uh, to see uh, if someone is not being able to kind of walk uh, the way they could or, you know, there's an impact to, to speech that you can hear. But, you know, being able to or, or having a problem with your memory is, is not as obvious. It's not, very, it's not as obvious um, to other people. So it can be a bit of a, uh, a, a hidden disability and, and, and some people, you know, uh, may not understand really what's happening for them uh, to the same extent. These days, there is a growing body of research uh, about cognitive um, rehabilitation, thankfully, and and some of that research has actually fed, fed down uh, into uh, rehab services for the community. Uh, some of the work that, that we do with uh, some memory rehab programs are um, evidence of that. But there's still there's still a pretty big gap. There's a pr- pretty give, big gap between what we understand about the prevalence of cognitive problems after stroke and what is available in terms of rehab services in the community. Setting goals is crucial to stroke recovery. Goals can be as simple as walking to the letterbox to check the mail or bigger goals like getting back to work. Enable Me has a unique tool where you and your carer or family can plan what you want to achieve, track how you are progressing and celebrate your successes. You can also connect with other people who set goals similar to yours and challenge or inspire each other. You can even set up a blog to write down how you are feeling and share your own story. And don't forget, our professionals from Stroke client can help with personalized and confidential advice to help you grow stronger after stroke visit enableme.org.au okay look this might be a good point to ask jan about her experiences with um with the program i imagine you've gone through a fair bit now with the um with the monash memory program how did you can I first ask how did you find out about well, it first of all i found it out through enable me 
I did see it, and I think they were doing face on face to face interviews. But I did apply apply for it and send off an inquiry that I was interested if they did it basically online. But I can refer to out of them, Chris. I can refer to David, Tony, and I all about what they've said about the cloud, the fatigue. Um, in my case, I had about twelve months rehab part time, and. My memory and the the biggest thing was the cloud and not thinking of anything. My brain felt like it was hollow. And when I saw this, I thought, this may be of some help. I could took three years to be able to even say a sentence, put a sentence together for me. But um, it was through and could enable me, the new webs website for stroke survivors and families, etc. And I think it's one of the best things out because it's helped so many and already I've handed it out to someone today. It's a little flyer from Enable Me. But that's where I found out about it and then I think David might have given, I can't remember who, but someone did ring me from Monash to say would I be interested in doing it online, so I did. And you found it's helped you a lot? Well, to start with, I thought I'd be embarrassed by doing it. I might be stupid or whatever. Not stupid, that's probably not the right word. But actually doing it because, to me, I was pretty hopeless to be able to get my um, thoughts together. And um, it sort of, turns basically start and it, my negative thoughts started to turn into positives. And the David and... Chantelle, I think it was, um, put me at ease, um, especially with David with his Monash HMSHS or something, Quadrix, that he always sent out to send out um, surveys to do every week. Um, but I learnt so much, the new words and skills, but most importantly, I learnt strategies. As I think Tiny said, it was about the retrieval in the, the brain and I also learned about the hippocampus so I did refer to it as the hippopotamus because that's what it felt like. It has done so much to me to help things improve my in, improve my memory. My speech is still not perfect because I'm tired today and I apologise about that but um, I have to concentrate to talk to you guys. But it taught me new skills, how to look after myself better and to Instead of being able to only do one thing at a time, I can actually do two things at a time now if need be. The actual program itself has helped me so much and it was like waking up like I'd had a bolt of lightning or something going into my brain. But it's um, just doing things like remembering the safety box. David taught me about a safety box, which I still use, the safety box. Put everything into the box and you won't lose it. And you look in the box or you set up um, an app, you have apps if you need them, and keep a diet. But I write down everything basically of its importance. And I have now got my own little way of doing things with a whiteboard and putting appointments on and things like that. I am remembering, whereas I didn't before unless I'd written it down. But then I'd lose that where I put it because I put it in a safe place never find it. Um, so, David and Tony, what what, what other sort of uh, strategies and uh, tips do you, do you supply people in this part of this program? 
Sure. So there are a number of strategies that uh, taught or have gone through in the memory skills group. And we broadly group these into internal and external strategies. So internal strategies are those where we modify our approach to a task within our own minds. And a good example of that is people find it helpful or can find it helpful to associate something new to be remembered or learnt with something that's a little bit more familiar to them. So, for example, if you're trying to remember my name, Tony, it might be a bit easier for you if you could associate that with a Tony that you're familiar with or somebody from childhood or somebody else that you know. So building that link between something that's familiar and something that's unfamiliar really strengthens your ability to recall that new memory. The other uh, side of that is the external strategies. So they're things that we can modify in our environment to help support our memory. Jan mentioned a few of those ones. So they include things like the whiteboards and diaries. More importantly, or becoming more prevalent, are smartphones and smartphone applications. So there are a number of really great smartphone apps, including calendars and electronic notes that can be really helpful in taking that pressure off the memory system. So really outsourcing that. To something that's in the environment. Okay, um, those so those are kind of organising sort of apps. Um, so the other kind of apps and computer things that come to mind when we think about memory is your brain training games and yes. that sort of thing. Do they help? Are they are they any use to people? So. Currently, as it stands, there is no evidence to support the effect of brain training games in improving our thinking skills. So this evidence from my study that we've just finished analysing, as well as an existing body of research, seems to point to the fact that anybody who plays these games tends to get better at them in the way that we get better at anything that we do quite repetitively. But that improvement doesn't transfer or generalise to real-world everyday improvement. For example, participants in my study, they did improve in the games that we got them to play in the memory set of games, but overall they didn't report that there was a change or an improvement in their, in their functional memory. And that's a common thread that's coming out from the brain training research area. But in saying that, um, a lot of people do enjoy playing the games and they feel like it does give them something to do and they're quite engaging and interactive. And if that is the case, by all means, continue to play them. But I guess having that understanding that it's not a, a miracle solution or that they're not going to um, improve your memory necessarily. Now, uh, David, I understand the program is being run remotely as a telehealth uh, trial. Uh, can you explain what that is and how people can get involved in it if they're interested? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, before I do, I'd just like to say how encouraging it is to hear um, how much Jan got out of this program. And um, yeah, I did, that's kind of uh, really positive to hear. And um, I'm, I'm so pleased that, that Jan got a got so much to change her, her life. That's great. I was just going to say it did change my life because it took 18 years. Yeah, so and e even, even this... something new. Even this long later, after a stroke, there's still uh, potential for, for change. Just as a little bit of, of background, if that's right, uh, about my study, uh, at the heart of it um, is a program called the, the Monash Memory Skills Group, and, and that's led by Dr. Dana Wong at the Monash Psychology Centre in Notting Hill in Melbourne. Um, and that's a six-week uh, course in memory skills, uh, and, and that's designed for people with an acquired brain injury. Um, to get together in a, in a group that's supportive and and uh, and social, you know, to to share that um, rehabilitation experience. Uh, so the course is uh, one kind of 
two-hour uh, session each each week, and it covers a lot of the strategies that Tony just mentioned in in terms of kind of internal mental strategies and ideas to support your memory functioning using tools uh, in in your environment uh, as effectively as you can. Uh, it's you know includes information about how memory works and how it's impacted by stroke. Um, uh, or brain injury in, in case of the, of the group. Um, and all of these kind of other life fact, life, lifestyle factors as well, like, like sleeping fatigue and diet and exercise and managing stress, all of those have a, uh, a contribution uh, uh, and, and a potential impact on the way memory uh, operates, so which is, which is uh, great. You know, it's, it's a fantastic program and it's really good for people who have access to it. But uh, that, that brings me to my study, which is kind of about the fact that not everyone has access to, to a great program like this. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who have memory issues after stroke, um, but they might live in a country town or a regional or rural area, you know, that, that don't have the same kind of local services uh, to, uh, you know, to sign up to. Um, but even in the city, uh, you know, uh, our, our stroke uh, community, uh, there's a lot of us who have uh, uh, impacts to uh, how easy it is that we can get around and how easy we can travel in our community. Uh, so a lot of people, you know, have a, find it a little bit more difficult to get out of the house to, to, to you know, to, to access uh, a program like this. So for the program that I'm running, um, we've adapted that Monash Memory Skills Group um, for a one-on-one setting. Um, some people also find it a little bit difficult to be in a group setting. Um, and, and also uh, for uh, delivery over the internet. So using a, a, a program that's very similar to Skype. I think a lot of people are very familiar with that. So we're, we're kind of delivering this program uh, over the internet. And we're measuring the benefit that people get out of that that, that, that program, whether it's face-to-face or over the internet. Yeah, so we hope to uh, ultimately uh, uh, provide evidence that there is uh, programs like this uh, that can be provided with uh, to people with limited access to, to other things. Yeah. Okay, so people are able to get in touch with you if they want to be part of this? Absolutely, yeah. Um, certainly for, for my study, um, that's the, the one-on-one or the uh, the the internet delivery of the program uh, absolutely get in touch with me uh, my email is probably best which is david.lawson l-a-w-s-o-n at monash.edu of course if you are in Melbourne and you're interested in the, the, the Monash Memory Skills Group yeah I think just a matter of getting in touch with um, Dana Wong at the Monash Psychology Centre in Notting Hill in Melbourne I, I should mention as well that as part of uh, um, a research program uh, the uh, the program uh, one-on-one uh, with me uh, is is free of charge. So that's positive as well. <laughs> Great. And Renee, I understand your lab does uh, cognitive uh, assessments and that sort of thing as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, in our lab, we, we really specialise our research in terms of rehabilitation of a range of cognitive and mood issues after stroke um, and are always looking for people to participate in our research. So if anyone out there is interested in, in participating in some of our research, looking at um, cognitive and mood rehabilitation after stroke, they can get in contact with us 
too. Um, our email is psych.strokeresearch at monash.edu. Great. Well, look, we will put all those links up on our website. Um, I encourage everyone to go to the, the podcast page on Enable Me website for all these contact details, where there's also a transcript um, of our conversation we've just had so that you can read all the advice in case you can't remember it all. Um, look, thank you all for coming in. I think we've run out of time now. Um, so, yeah, thank you to Jan Corcoran in Queensland and Tony Withiel, David Lawson and Renee Stolwick. Did you know you can customise the Enable Me website to suit all your viewing needs? You can choose large size fonts or different alignment of text on your screen, a high contrast screen so that different parts stand out, automatically underline the start and end of each sentence, read in easy English and many more options. Set up once and your personal settings are saved for all your future visits. Just click on the accessibility icon at the top of the screen at enableme.org.au. Right, and finally today we have speech pathologist Elena Stewart from Strokeline. Thanks for joining us again, Elena. Thanks for having me, Chris. Now, do you speak to many people on Strokeline with memory problems affecting their life? We do. We speak to a lot of stroke survivors and a lot of their partners, um, husbands and wives, family and friends um, who are observing that person struggle with their memory difficulties and are also feeling the impact of that themselves as well. And how does it affect some practical things? Things like returning to work and, and that sort of stuff. Mm. Memory can, um, I guess, like all of our speakers have touched on so far, affect day-to-day tasks such as um, things like remembering to take medication or remembering to eat breakfast in the morning or what time you need to catch the bus. And when you experience those difficulties in a work setting, you've got to think about the impact that that has on, I guess, attendance at meetings, remembering notes that you need to jot down or um, telling telephone numbers or, um, you know, the names of people that you meet can have a big impact on your, your productivity and your, um, your enjoyment at work. When you add things like fatigue, difficulty concentrating on top of that, it can be a really challenging time for stroke survivors. So that's when looking at a return to work program that may encompass a stage return or a return at reduced hours is, is a really good workaround because you can see um, how am I coping in this situation do I need to implement some new um, memory strategies um, and what might they be and are they effective? Okay, would that involve working with an uh, occupational therapist or would be looking at, say, a neuropsychologist like uh, our previous guests? So the short answer would be both. Like Renee was saying earlier, every stroke survivor is different and every memory difficulty is very individualised as well. So when we get callers through to Stroke Line, um, we are recommending that they see a neuropsychologist if that service is available to them. Um, an occupational therapist is normally more accessible and, and most community settings um, and we can talk people through that referral pathway so the occupational therapist and or neuropsychologist can really help with that return to work plan and can support you through that transition period. Okay, now you are a speech pathologist, so I just wanted to ask you too, what is the connection between memory and language problems uh, after stroke? Mm, so both um, Tony and David were talking about difficulties recalling people's names or remembering words, and I think stroke survivors um, would be quite familiar with the term word-finding difficulties, which many stroke survivors experience, as do all of us, no matter whether we've had a stroke or not. That ability to 
recall and retrieve that word from the language centre of the brain can be impaired after a stroke. We can also find that we um, repeat a conversation or tell a story that we've already told before. And it's often, um, it can be frustrating for friends and family who will give the feedback, you've already told me that story and the person has no memory of that. So it can have an impact on relationships most definitely. Mm. Okay. Also then what would be the the top tips that you would give to people regarding their, their memory issues? So I love some of the strategies that Jan gave, you know, using a diary, using these external memory aids that work best for you. Creating a routine is a really great idea. So having some kind of predictability around um, what you do at certain points in the week, um, you know, at particular times, where do you put the keys every time you get home? Do they go on the hook by the door? Just setting up some level of predictability so that you can rely on that and, and fall back into that pattern ring stroke line and we can definitely help you out with some tips as well using an iPhone we spoke briefly about um, you know the use of applications and things now where you can take notes electronically you can set reminders in your calendar set an alarm to say take medication use something like a a dose set box where um, your medicine's organized for the week and I guess Speaking about medication, I would like to add that memory difficulties can definitely put a person, it can put their safety at risk, particularly when something like medication is involved. So not only a person um, remembering to take the medicine or not, but also if they've already taken it, they're at risk of doubling up on the dose. And then there's a risk around safety with things like fire. So leaving the oven or the iron on um, when the person leaves the house. So that's particularly concerning for us and we would be working with that person and their um, their their carer or their support network around supervising that person and, and linking them into these memory services that um, Renee, Tony and David spoke about earlier. Fantastic. Okay, anything else? Any other advice you want to add there? Oh, I'd just say, as always, stay active, <laughs> eat well, sleep well. Um, you know, I think... If you listen back to a number of our podcasts, those themes really flow through and underline a lot of these post-stroke difficulties. Mm. Um, and we know that if a person's um, mood is good, that they're well supported by friends and family, they're sleeping well and eating well, that these strategies and, and rehab programs are much more likely to be effective. So, Yeah, it sounds like those, as you said, is a common theme and affecting um, recovery, but also quality of life and, uh, and general outlook as well most definitely fantastic well thank you very much elena now if you do need to find out more you can speak to a health professional on stroke line by calling 1-800-787-653 or 1-800-STROKE and of course through enable me you can also ask your question and get a response from health professionals and other stroke survivors and that is it for today if you like what you've heard please give us a good rating and review on itunes as that will help other people to find our podcast uh, thank you once again to all our guests we've had jan corcoran Tony Withiel, David Lawson, Renee Solwick and Elena Stewart. That's all for today's Enable Me podcast. 
You can find out more on this topic and continue the conversation or listen to other podcasts in the series at our website, enableme.org.au. It's free to sign up and you can talk with thousands of other stroke survivors, carers and supporters. We also have health professionals from StrokeLine who can answer your questions and give evidence-based advice. The advice given here is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your health professional. If you would like to suggest a topic or provide feedback, contact us via the website enableme.org.au. The music in this podcast is Signs by stroke survivor Antonio Ianella and his band, The Lion Tamers. It was recorded at Antonio's studio, which you can find out more about at www.studio499. That's F-O-U-R-99.org.au. This Enable Me podcast series is produced by the National Stroke Foundation in Australia. Keeps burning, people rushing around. But never see